Well, at least this will get us through the millennium. <laughs> Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Honey, did you turn your... Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to read this, uh, the first 20 verses, out of the King James tonight. Uh, it's large enough print that I can see it, and I think it's better than just trying to listen to it. Uh, off of the the Bible that may not be as loud and clear as it needs as everyone needs. So, and understand, versions are different. The message is the same. So, uh, uh, just uh, I guess we need to be tolerant of that. So he asked the question: What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Well. Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be found true, and every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous, who taketh vengeance? I speak of as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have the used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." Okay, let me get to my notes. 
And tonight, um, we're going to see the verdict. The verdict from uh, chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, as the Jew made all these claims, who he was, his name, his God, his book, uh, teacher of babes, and then God offered counterclaims to the claims of the Jew. And now it's time for the showdown. That's what it really is. It's God's verdict. And I'll get to it here in a moment. <clears throat> so chapter 3 begins with basically the asking of several questions. And they are presented as a result of the conclusion to chapter 2. So the first question is, what advantage does a Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? See, that's the mind of the Jew then when this was written. See, the Jew thought himself to be superior. The Jew thought he was much better than the Gentile. And after God's counterclaims, God's main counterclaim was the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So then their question is, well, why be a Jew? What advantage is there to being a Jew? And what's the benefit of circumcision? Response. That was verse 1. Scripture insists that there's a definite advantage since they received the oracles of God. And they're the only people on the planet that did. The oracles refer to the totality of the Old Testament. That would have been the law, the Psalms, the writings, the prophets. Then second, if some in verse 3, if some did not believe, well, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? Will it? The response is, see, they had received the oracles of God. But what was the outcome? Many did not believe. Will God cease to be faithful to the nation because some did not believe? In fact, only a remnant ended up believing? The answer is the unbelief of man will not change the Word of God. And that's a good word for today. The unbelief of man will not change the Word of God. Let God be found true and every man a liar. Verse 4, So the unbelief of man does not change the Word of God. It remains truth. Then number 3, they say if our unrighteousness demonstrated the righteousness of God, well, God then who inflicts wrath, He's not unrighteous, is He? Verse 5. See, Paul is presenting every argument that would come from a proud nation that refuses to repent. And the response to that is real short. May it never be. For otherwise... How would God judge 
the world. And that was again chapter 2, the judgment of God and how that it is uh, done honorably and without partiality. Uh, Verse 6, So man would bring a charge against God as being unjust in His judgment. Which brings us to number 4 in verse 7. If through my lie the truth abounded to His glory, well, why am I also now still being judged as a sinner? The response. See, man would use his logic to escape the judgment of God. They do it today. See, some would go so far to say, well, let us do good so that evil may come. Or, pardon me, let us do evil that good may come. That was verse 8. And the reply to this ludicrous idea is, their condemnation, King James says, their damnation is just. That's strong. Then, finally the question comes, are you better than they? In verse 9, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? The response is, well, we've listened to the testimony from God's viewpoint, and the answer comes with a resounding, no, not at all. Verse 9, all are under sin. That needs to be underscored. All are under sin. He's going to say it three times. So God's verdict is all of the testimony has been heard. All of the claims and the counterclaims have been made. The arguments have been made. The arguments have been answered. The evidence has been weighed. Cross-examine has taken place of the Jew. And he has been given an opportunity to respond and to appeal. So God says, will the defendant please rise? The Jew and the Gentile. Rise and stand before heaven's court. The verdict is on all counts. Guilty. All are under sin. So if one is guilty, what's the consequences? They face punishment. Isn't that right? So the phrase he says, they're all under sin, that means that they're all under the authority and the power. They're under sin. So, it's a position of authority. Sin has the authority over every individual. Notice that sin is in the singular. Sin is seen as the ruling power, which has subjected all men. So again, verse 9, both Jew and Greek, the Gentile, are all under sin. It does not say that they all sinned. It says they're under sin. It did not say they're all sinners. But they're all under the power and the authority of sin. So the position of the Jew is the same as Gentiles. The question there in verse 9 is, 
Are we better than them? So the Jew received the oracles of God, but what happened? He didn't believe. See, we saw that in verse 2 and verse 3. The Jew received the law, but what did he do? He continued in unrighteousness. That was verse 5. So the privileged position of the Jew does not exempt him from sin. He stands in need of what? God's righteousness as well as Gentiles. So God's verdict is announced again. If you didn't hear it the first time, and if I wasn't listening, God's verdict in verse 10 is, there is none righteous. Not only are they all under sin, but there's none righteous. Didn't say there were sinners. Said there was none righteous. Not even one. Can't get an indictment any stronger than that. So the Gentile is thinking what? Hey, sure put those Jews in their place. See, it's, uh, uh, that's what we thought all along. That's what the Gentile's thinking. So he now turns his attention to the Gentile. And he includes them right along with the Gentiles, uh, with the Jews. Sin has reigned over all men. All are under sin. See, so under sin again means man has become the servant of sin. Sin rules over him. The flesh of man becomes the spear of sin's reign. See, man is dominated by his body, by his flesh, by his lust, by his desires, by his vain imaginations, by his secret thoughts, by his deep yearnings, by passion. It's all the flesh expressed in one way or another. So sin becomes a principle of life which distorts the image of God. In verse 11, sin has reigned through man's selfishness and rebellion. There's none who seeks for God. So, what has man done? He has chosen to live apart from God. That's rebellion. Man has decided to live for himself. That's selfishness. So, he then says in verses 11 and 12, there is none who understands what? The ways of God. All have turned aside. Together, it literally says they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's the third time, isn't it? I think I get the point. So, we have a moral picture of the natural man. Count one, guilty. Then he goes on to describe the guilty man. How you identify him. How you know who he is. He says, first of all, his throat is an open grave. An open sepulcher. Verse 13. I don't know how you would look at that, but I, I definitely see that in social media. I see it in mainstream media. And not to be overlooked, it's the political arena. You know, their throat is an open sepulcher. So, 
out of the sepulcher what comes? Vulgarity, obscenity, hateful speech. I mean, could you define what I just mentioned any better? Their, their throat is an open sepulcher. So the mouth that speaks is like the odor of an open grave. Now, a deteriorated body is about the worst there is. I just can't help but say, it's probably like many of those that just attended Burning Man. You might remember that lesson I brought on Burning Man too. Finally, the, the mainstream media has decided five years later after we talked about it, to oh, let the public finally know about it. Except to make it... Yeah, there you are. So, count one, they were guilty. Count two, guilty. With his tongue, verse 13, he keeps deceiving. The Hebrew use of the word deceit means they smooth their tongues. Hmm... Sounds like a politician to me. <laughs> I mean, there's two men in my life that I've been a life coach to for over 20 years. I cannot get across to these individuals, they have trust issues. Because they keep deceiving. They don't get it. They don't get it in their relationships. They, don't, they didn't get it in their marriages. They certainly don't get it in their business dealings. Deceit rules their words. It's always somebody else's fault. Now that's hard to crack that egg. 20 years with both of these guys. But we keep on because that's our responsibility. Then verse 13. <clears throat> he says the poison of asp is under his lips. Well, that refers to the Egyptian cobra whose poison is contained under the lips. So his speech is described as poison. Poison destroys. So wherever this guy goes... You can track him by the ruin, by the chaos they leave behind. They're a train wreck. There is a contact tracer under his lips. Who did you last talk to? Then in verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Well, have we ever seen any of that today? That's kind of like the language, you know, that follows the Supreme Court ruling that somebody doesn't agree with. Like Roe versus Wade. I mean, was there not cursing and bitterness? And there still is. Or maybe after the affirmative action ruling, cursing and bitterness or climate change. Or you can make your own list. So there's cursing rather than blessing which comes from his mouth. Bitterness and unforgiveness are the very sounds of his heart. 
hatred, anger, strife characterize his life. And he's just described the cesspool of so many American cities. Count four. Guilty. His feet are swift to shed blood. In verse 15. So what follows this individual? Violence, hostility. It's the nature of the natural man. I mean, just pick up and read the paper of any major city in the United States. Read Apple News. I mean, violence and hostility. Then this individual, his entertainment, is defined by violence. His PlayStation, his movie preferences, his entertainment venues, his music choices. They're all champions of violence. That's the natural man. In verse 16, destruction and misery are in his paths. So, destruction and chaos follows every decision. His uncontrollable ambitions leave destruction and misery behind. And, I don't know, I just think more recently, some of these cryptocurrency dealers and uh, some very large banks. I mean, they have left destruction and misery to so many people out of their greed. Then verse 17, the path of peace he has not known. So there's no peace in his heart. There's no peace with man. There's no peace with God. Could you better describe the last three American presidents? There's no peace. Then, count five. There's no fear of God before His eyes. Verse 18. So, no fear indicates there's no reverence. There's no reverence for God. And we can see the declining spiritual environment in America where less than half the population even believe that there is a God. Irreverence has been called the mother of evil. So this person refuses to humble himself. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's haughty. He's self-important. He's high-minded. A hubris-driven narcissist. The person who's driven by power, wealth, and privilege. So the verdict issued by God is repeated to both Jews and Gentiles. What was stated in verse 12, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Now, God's verdict resonates in verses 19 and 20. By the law, no flesh is justified. And we're introduced to a new word. Thank goodness. Justification. Are being justified. In verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh. See, the Jew thought if he kept the law, well, he would be justified. But no, by the works of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight. Verse 20, to justify means to vindicate, to treat as just, to be acquitted, to be pronounced and treated as righteous, to be set free. 
Now, this word having been introduced, we're going to meet it in the next three or four chapters of the book of Romans. And thank goodness. I mean, have we not heard enough about the natural man? <laughs> you know, justification, short definition, we'll see is a divine work of God where God declares guilty righteous. God does it all. Not you, not the church, but God. That's His divine work. So, back to verse 19. The law does what? It closes the mouth of those under the law. The law speaks to those who are under the law. The law judges sin. When the law judges sin, what does it bring? Death. It's the law of sin and death. So that the whole world is accountable to God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin in verse 20. So the law was given to reveal sin. The law was given to judge the sinner. It was never to make him righteous. So no one will be justified by the law. You mean if I kept all ten of the commandments? The Ten Commandments, I wouldn't be justified. No, its purpose was not to ju justify anyone. You could actually keep all 613 of the Old Testament laws. That does not justify. No one will be justified by the law. The law brings guilt. The law brings judgment. And then the law brings death. The law is unable to set the sinner free or justify him before God. No flesh can be justified by the law. The law says every time to every person, guilty. Guilty is charged because all have sinned. Under the law, there is no provision for mercy and there's no, not even so much as a mission, uh, 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 mention of grace. You read all the Old Testament, you're going to find mercy? You're going to find grace? Not there. See, the law only provides judgment for the guilty. That doesn't mean you can't find the words there. At times, God did. The judgment, though, is death, and there's no exceptions. See, grace and mercy only exist under the cross. The law has no provision for grace. The law had no provision for mercy. The law did not have any provision for forgiveness, for atonement, for propitiation, for sanctification, for justification, for freedom or deliverance. All the law could say is you're guilty. So you say, but there was grace and mercy. To some under the law, that's right. There were those who were forgiven under the law because grace and mercy was extended, but not as a part of the law, before the cross because God's divine act at Calvary was in view. And God has the power to forgive, but the law didn't provide it. All right. 
God's verdict after reconsidering all of the petitions, the Supreme Court of Heaven responds again in verse 23. If we didn't get it the first two times, all have sinned. And they've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's whether you're Jew or Gentile. So what does that tell us? All men are guilty before God. And that's the hardest thing to get a, a person to that state. No one, and I don't say no one, people by nature do not want to admit guilt. Oh, I'm sorry. But where does God ever tell us to say I'm sorry? But that's our default. All men are guilty before God. Now, if we, I believe, at least my experience has taught me, that if we could get men to the point of guilt, we wouldn't have much of a problem seeing them converted to Christianity. So many times there's no conversion. Oh, they walked the aisle. They said some words. But they just go on being the same old way. Not everyone, but there is a group. A large group. So, all men are guilty before God. All men commit sin. All men do wrong. All men violate God's instruction. They violate God's teaching, God's commands. And it's in the aorist tense, which in the Greek means it indicates that which is committed. That which is done. It means to fall short. It means to miss. It means to fail to reach, to come too late, to fall, to give out, to lack, to come up short. I think we get the idea. And that part is in the present tense, which indicates a continual failure to measure up. So, as God looks at one's actions, what does He see? Continual sin. As God looks at one's life, it fails to measure up to the righteousness of His glory. Man is a habitual sinner who's failed to measure up to the glory that God has ordained for man. So when God speaks, all had better listen and repent. Now, we're going to look at a view of God's righteousness. I mean, we've already looked at man's righteousness. There is none. Zero. So, we need to be introduced to God's righteousness because that's what man needs. It couldn't be found under the law or law-keeping. So, back when Jesus said in the Gospels to the Jews that your view of righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, He was teaching them to have a view of God's righteousness that can only be described as a divine act. It speaks of God's saving activity in the earth. The righteousness of God is offered to the unrighteous. 
which is parallel to salvation, the salvation of God. It is His saving power manifested in deeds and in actions. Now, we're going to peg it right there because I only went to verse 20. And next time we're going to take up in verse 21 and we're going to talk about the righteousness of God. That is what all men need. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so very grateful that You are constant, that You are unchanging. Thank You that Your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that lives in me and everyone in this room, is constant and unchanging too. Whenever I look to You, I'm being transformed by Your Spirit into Your image. Help me and help all of us to value Your presence in our life more than we value anything else. When others look at us, I pray, Lord, You want, us, you want them to see Your radiance reflected in us. Set us free from anything in our life that would keep us from all that You have for us. In the powerful, wonderful name of the unchanging God. Amen.